Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. This is our second in our summer Sherlock replay where myself, Scott and Josh go back through the catalogue of the vault, if you want to think of it that way, of our first season and select and reintroduce the favourites, I guess, Josh, or the highlights from our first project together. That's elementary, my dear Powell. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to feature the Bruce Partington plans from his last yeah. bow. Yeah, I know it's an interesting choice on my part, yeah. I know. But uh, Tell me I, why you chose uh, this particular story, Scott. I mean, there's so many ones you could choose from, and I know that you never really talked too much excitedly about this one, but why this particular story? Well, I, I did like this story, um, and I remember our episode on it was, was quite, a, quite a good chat, so I think listeners are going to enjoy this. We got into a lot of discussion about submarines, a lot of discussion about uh, Conan Doyle's own penchant for kind of naval intelligence and things like that. And this is a story which... Um, kind of, it, it kind of reworks things from earlier stories because it does come later in Conan Doyle's career. But yes. I think, you know, when, when we studied The Dancing Men, Josh, we discussed how um, rehashing your own ideas isn't a criminal thing for an author as long as the improvements no. are, as long as they're improved rehashes, you know, as long as they're, they're stories that somehow um, capture the interest or improve upon what didn't work last time. And I think yeah. the Bruce Partington plans, and at least in my opinion, and I know I go against the author's opinion here, but I think the Bruce Partington plans is kind of like an improved naval treaty. And I know we talked about that when we went through it the first time, but, you know, the idea of the stolen plans, the political intrigue surrounding um, the theft and, and then the sort of spy work that's done, I think this is a really good Sherlock story. And I, I love yeah, the Yeah, he kind does of, use elements from the other story, but he also makes them different and he subverts those expectations you would have of where yeah, it would go if it yeah. was a rehash. That's right, yeah. And so, I, I mean, I really enjoyed this one uh, for some of those features. And I think, you know, in, this, in, in the spirit of what we're doing here between bigger book episodes where we're just trying to reintroduce and kind of revisit some of our older stories, I really did enjoy this one when I reread it. And I, I think maybe it I got too. a short, I think maybe it got a bit of a, a harder time than it deserved, at least when we first did it. Well, do you know, I think what affected it for me a little bit when I first read it was that I remember the BBC Sherlock episode that did like, I, I know it, yeah, it took yeah. place like within one particular, like it was one little vignette in mm -hmm. one long episode. I yeah. think it was one about Moriarty, if I'm not mistaken. And so I just remembered, oh, this is this story. So then I just kind of like looked at it this way going, okay, I know how this is going to turn out. But now when I reread it, um, I really appreciated how ingenious, how cleverly it's written and the whole idea of, of, you know, the body on top of the train and then the mm -hmm, junction mm -hmm. and then just everything is all fit together so well. Like he took all the elements, the plot elements from those from that previous story, but he actually made it work because we always said that the Naval Treaty kind of falls short of what it could have been. Yeah. The sense of urgency isn't there. You kind of find the, the victim of the situation kind of annoying, actually, <laughs> in a way like, seriously, man, like, get off... <laughs> Get off your couch and you know what I you know what I mean? Like Yeah, stop staring at roses. Exactly. Stop staring at roses. Be a man, you know. Be a man like uh, Partington was, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean yeah. I mean he died instead, but <laughs> he did. You know, yeah. He, he did. did. So instead. I guess he he did die instead. But yeah, like it's also a great sort of early spy thriller too, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a cool little story, and uh, I think it reads quite modern, as you say. It does read a bit more modern than some of these other very, very firmly placed within the uh, the Victorian era. You know, this this was read a little modern. Of course, it is a little. I got bit a more smile modern. on my face because I was kind of picturing like with the submarine in my mind at the time. I wasn't thinking of you know like the diesel subs, like the U boats that would come out of the mm -hmm, World mm -hmm. War One. You know, decade later or so, mm -hmm. I was more thinking of like either the Nautilus. Or uh, even like, you know, old Ironsides, you know, from um, yeah. the Civil War, right? Sure, yeah. So I was kind of thinking of those kind of submarines in that kind of way with the, what it looked mm -hmm. like. So in my mind, I was smiling. I was smiling as I read it because mm -hmm. I was just sort of like an enjoyable sort of almost steampunk kind of Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. spy story <laughs> yeah. in that way. It does have that kind of feeling to it. And I think our listeners will enjoy it because we did a lot of good research on submarines here. And of course, Conan Doyle's own interest in sort of the uh, the German high fleet commander's interest in Conan Doyle. It's all here in this episode. And we think yeah. you'll, you'll really enjoy this. So uh, yeah, For sure. the Bruce Partington plans. We hope you enjoy this little Sherlock sampler. Cheers. Enjoy.
let's see any thematic links we can make with the Bruce Partington plans. Yeah, the Bruce Partington plans. Where do you begin with this one? Um, it's a study. It's that's for sure. It's a study. I'll break into this. Okay. Um, Please. Because you're doing the summary here, so I can get into the publication history. Cool. But you know, like we always communicate before we do these shows, of course, uh, all the time on Messenger and whatnot. And you showed me uh, a JPEG of your notes, hmm. and you have this wonderful cartoon. What's the style of your Peter punctuation you used to do when you marked stuff back in the past of like Arthur Conan Doyle in a bathtub playing with a submarine? I did. And, I did draw that. Yes. Uh, I just I just found that absolutely amazing, and uh, I think it summarizes this whole story. And that's that's that. <laughs> well, it does kind of summarize the story. He had a great fascination with submarines. He was really into them, and well, I don't know. I mean, do you want to get into this now, or? I think it's a nice introduction. Sure. Okay, well, he was fascinated with submarines. Um, when we studied the Valley of Fear together, uh, I remember talking to you about uh, some of the research I had done that had unearthed um, th this correspondence that he had with uh, another, uh, with a journalist for the Times, I think, who was critical of his belief that submarine warfare was going to win the war, right? And uh, Doyle was really pushing for the building of a tunnel between um, Britain and, or between England and France, so hmm. to so to kind of limit the number of uh, merchant ships that could be lost and all this type of stuff. And he was kind of laughed out of town, but it was later discovered that um, through personal letters and correspondence that the German uh, high fleet commander had actually read and was, you know, putting a lot of faith in what Doyle was saying about submarines winning the war. And he, ah. and, and it's kind of, it's kind of believed that, you know, had Germany gone and, uh, you know, if, if they had unrestricted submarine warfare at the time, that they probably would have wiped out a lot of mercantile shipping and, uh, may even have tipped the scales but you know i mean you, you could pick a hundred moments from history that would have tipped the scales right but that's just one of yes. the interesting little things anyway uh doyle wrote a story in 1914 called danger which was warning of the perils of submarine warfare before they were actually widely regarded or appreciated today scholars ponder as to why the british didn't really develop something similar for use in world war one when germany certainly had and boats, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I, we can go back and look at the notes about the Valley of Fear. But I think, you know, listen to that episode if you want a little bit more about that. Uh, but yes, I did draw a little picture of Doyle playing uh, sub in the tub. I just thought it uh, it spoke to me at the moment. And yeah. uh, Bruce the, Partington, by the way, is a submarine. It is. Yes. Uh, when was this published? You got info on that? Publication, it was in the Strand Magazine and Collier's Weekly Magazine in December 1908. December 1908, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's personally ranked by Arthur Conan Doyle as number 14 in a list of his 19 favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm -hmm, it is. So we are on to a story here that is, uh, well, I mean, they're all canon, but this one perhaps, what, more significantly than others because it has the author's, the author's own... Uh, appreciation? Who knows? Do you put any, you know, any stock into that? That idea that if a writer likes it, therefore we gotta like it. No, I, I don't, because I think they see things outside the box. Then they're outside the box, and we're not. We have to appreciate the story that's given to us and written. Um, I think an author can easily miss personal uh, things that are like in jokes, you know, that only they would notice. It's. I'm not saying that the whole story is a joke. I'm just saying is that uh, there's certain. Um, perspectives that an author puts into a story where he really enjoys writing it, and that does not speak for the quality of the story itself. No, good point. Yeah, and I mean, this is clearly a pet project for him. He has this interest in submarines, and uh, actually, the um, the Klinger edition I got shows you some pretty remarkable pictures of uh, what submarines, you know, the, the type of technology available at the time, and if you go online and look through the history of it, and I do have a history of submar uh, submarine I want to share with you. Uh, we can do that maybe a little bit later. Or is it mm -hmm. fitting to do that now? I don't know. Well, no, maybe, we'll do we'll do it at the end. We'll do it at the yeah. end. Uh, should now, we just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I got the Goodreads here, though. I mean, yeah, the Goodreads, read, the Goodreads good had to be done. I will begin this with a preface, though. Yeah. So reading the Bruce Partington plans, had you had seen the Sherlock, the great, uh, what is it, the great game 
prior to the Bruce Pardoning plant, you read the book, read the story of the Bruce Pardoning plans? Yeah, because uh, I had seen all the Sherlock recently. Well, recently, within the last yeah. year, Sarah and I watched them all. Right. So you recall The Great Game, which is the third episode of season one of Sherlock Holmes. It's the first appearance of Moriarty. Uh, sorry, of Sherlock, BBC Sherlock, is the first appearance of Moriarty, where he puts uh, Holmes in all these series of different uh, cases that he has to solve to prevent someone from being blown up. There, yeah. the, there, there is the exact adaptation of the Bruce Pardoning plans put into that story, uh-huh. even to the case, even how the case was solved uh, in in that fashion. So I find it funny in Goodreads that this person, okay, her name is. And it's a, her avatar is that of butternut cucumber patch, or sorry, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, that's her avatar. And of course, it's Molly, who is, of course, if you, for those who watch the, t- the BBC version, is the forensics uh, officer that's in love with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so I just found that really funny because you'd think that, that this person would give a critique, you know, that would be uh, impartial. Hmm. This is what <laughs> has to say. Always one of the greatest stories that Conan Doyle wrote. I loved it. Mm. Always one of the greatest stories. Always I loved one. it. Always one of the greatest stories that I loved it. I wonder so if something it's lost almost, in it's almost like she, almost like she prejudged that she would like it before she read it. Personally, um, judging on the fact that she looks like she's like a crazy Cumber fan or whatever. Uh, I think Cumber bitch is a funny term, but it's also kind of in, you know it's a bit it's a bit degrading as well. Is it? Um, well, yes, it is because bitch is a degrading term. But did, did you not tell me, and again, I defer to you on this, did you not tell me that it's kind of owned, like a badge, that term? It it definitely is owned, but I, I have, but the fact that I have, I feel I have to remind people that it's owned is still kind of indicating that uh, it's going to... Yeah. It's 50-50. So it's it's, not, a it's con- not comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's not comfortable. Yeah, it's a confirmation bias on this person's case, clearly. Yeah. Um, this story has all the elements of the Sherlock... This is an, another quote. This story has all the elements of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, but is a little too short of the allure. The story seems to unfold with little excitement, but is very good anyway. Uh, I guess so that's how this person summarizes it. Uh, let's see how we we felt about it. But before that, uh, let's uh, hear your summary. Okay, the Bruce Partington plans. A few months ago, while reviewing The Adventure of the Dancing Men, just check out that episode, I append that rehashing one's own work is only bad form if the resulting product stinks or fails to make an improvement on what came before. Here we are again, inevitably perhaps, watching ACD mash up his favorite hits in the Bruce Partington plan, a hack and headset DJ before his time. In this case, the corpus of the tale is manufactured from elements of the Naval Treaty, the Second Stain, and the Red Circle. Now, as then, the question remains, does the sum total of this story suffer from being a Frankenstein's monster? Well, let's see. London is foggy. Holmes is bored. London is foggy. Holmes is restless. London is foggy. Watson tells us that apart from patiently casting himself into the polyphonic motets of the Middle Ages, Sherlock has been a right irritable sod lately. Lucky for them both when the maid brings a telegram announcing that Mycroft will be visiting. Though Watson fails to see it, Mycroft's visit is indeed rare and promises to bring with it an episode of intrigue to snap Sherlock from his malaise. Why so certain? Well, because Mycroft rarely goes off-piste with his routines and has only once before visited his brother's rooms at Baker Street. While waiting for the visit, Holmes and Watson discuss Mycroft in more detail than we were afforded in the Greek interpreter. And while we don't get as much time with Mycroft in this story, we do learn much more about his work. For the reader's privilege, Holmes all but states that his brother isn't just high up in the government, but the nucleus of its foreign and domestic policy-making, an unseen pit boss who calls all the nation's shots at the blackjack table. When he arrives, Mycroft is followed in by dear old Lestrade confirming that, for us at least, the impending investigation won't be completely outside the law. Lestrade does very little here, or throughout the story, so we presume this is just ACD filling the stage with familiar faces in the event of never returning to Holmes again. More than ever, the narratives are now taking on that feeling, as though each could be the last, so why not cram it full of what worked for us before? Anyhow, the national emergency is as follows. Plans for the Bruce Partington submarine have been stolen from Woolwich Arsenal. To Mycroft's mind, any nation with Britain's new naval technology would be able to use and rule the seas. Or some such Blackbeard nonsense. Anyway, combined with the recent death of Arsenal clerk Arthur Cadogan West, whose head was smashed in somewhere near Aldgate Underground Station, where his body was found, the missing papers fiasco now looks like a case of murder as well as treason. West was found with some, but not all, of the papers in his pockets. Three key sheets were missing. Was West trying to sell the plans, but got double-crossed in the process? 
Did his buyer or assailant take only what he wanted from the clerk, hoping to frame him? Is something more nefarious afoot? What chance is there now of retrieving the stolen submarine plans? Well, either way, Her Majesty's government cannot afford the scandal or the loss of new technology, but many spies would be hungry for both. Mycroft appeals to Holmes for help, encouraging him with the promise of full financial backing from the state. Nice. Although, technically, he's more clever than Sherlock, Mycroft has, unbelievably, even more social hang-ups than his brother, and he doesn't mingle well with the commoners, so Sherlock and Watson answer the call for Queen and Country. First stop, Aldgate Station, where it takes Sherlock only a few minutes to dismiss the leading theory of Cadigan West having been thrown from a moving train. Instead, Holmes deduces that he fell from atop the train carriage, meaning he was placed or killed there, and then fell off when the train changed direction at the points. Let the revelry begin. Fueled by the promise of Cadigan West's train-top conflict, other railway excitements like Buster Keaton and the General, Roger Moore and Octopussy, or Mulder versus Red-Haired Man in the X-Files all appear in our minds. However, when we find out later that young West was sloppily bludgeoned in the fog and dropped from an apartment window onto the roof of the idle train, well, the scene admittedly lacks some propulsion. But make no mistake, this would have been Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible action for 1908. Let's give Doyle <laughs> some credit here. Anyway, <laughs> stage one complete, the dynamic duo hurry to speak with the first of three key holders to the Arsenal storeroom, Sir James Walter, official guardian of the papers. Hoping to shine some light on the situation of Cadigan West, the great detective is shocked to learn upon arrival that Sir James passed away just that morning. Admitted in to speak with the great man's brother, Colonel Valentine Walter, Holmes is told that the scandal was too much for his brother to bear. So, wait for it, poor James died from a lack of honor. Really, Valentine's brother dies from a broken heart. Okay, have we entered a Care Bears episode here? <laughs> Valentine is himself a little hot and bothered, but we're happy to shrug it off as a family concern while the body of his brother is still itself hot and bothered, if you pardon the expression. It's worth noting here, too, that he's eager to point the finger of certain guilt at Cadigan West. Maybe a little too eager. Stay tuned. Well, we haven't much time to think about that, really, because the next stop on the Sherlock Metropolitan Line is West's home, where his fiancée, Miss Violet Westbury, speaks in defense of her deceased betrothed. On the night of his death, the couple were walking through the fog on the way to the theatre after a nice Pizza Hut buffet, when Cadigan up and abandoned his lady in the mist without a word of warning. She confesses to Holmes that he'd been bothered lately at home, but he could not divulge to her the nature of his disquiet on account of its secrecy. Huh, the plot thickens. If Cadigan West was behind the theft, why endanger his wife? Was he, or she, to be used as a blind, a cover? And who plans a night out with said wife? travels halfway to the theatre, and then abandons her near a station platform. That's not a clever way to build an alibi. The plot is indeed thickening, and Holmes follows it with a trip to Arsenal itself to speak with the third and final keyholder, senior clerk Sidney Johnson. While no excursion is fruitless for Sherlock, the reader gets very little out of these pages, as Johnson plays a steady and honest hand and doesn't share much that Holmes probably didn't already suspect. After these three inquiries, the case against Cadigan West appears less airtight than before, at least according to Sherlock, and at his request, Mycroft delivers a list of known foreign agents currently residing in London. After a quick reconnoitre, Holmes discovers that one agent, Hugo Oberstein, resides just above a railway line and has recently left town. Halloa! Opportunity knocks. He sends for Watson to meet him in Goldini's restaurant, Kensington, and to bring along your average evening wear, a jemmy, chisel, lantern, and a revolver. Insert customary nighttime burglary scene. When they crack the lock and start snooping around Oberstein's apartment, they soon find that a low stairwell does indeed open a window and lead just feet above the railway line. Upon closer examination, it bears a bloodstain. Further digging, this time in the study, reveals some pages of the Bruce Partington plans, or copies thereof, proving beyond much doubt that Oberstein is heavily connected. But the piece de resistance appears when Holmes lands upon snippets of the Daily Telegraph's personal pages, which showcase fairly one-sided communication from one called Pierrot, or Pierrot, if you will, listing locations and dates. Sensing his advantage, Holmes leads Watson out of Caulfield Gardens and straight to the newspaper office where, we learn in the next scene with Lestrade and Mycroft visiting, he has planted a fake Pierrot message with the intention of drying out the other accomplice. Encouraging Watson to, quote, write him down and ask this time, end quote, Holmes is surprised when the bait-taking mystery visitor is none other than Colonel Valentine Walter. Ashamed and cornered, Walter faints for a minute, is carried to the couch, and then accepts his fate with little choice to the contrary. Thus begins the latest in a long line of canonical deus ex villania explanations. 
Desperate for money to repay his stock exchange debt, guess he should have taken advice from Hall Pycroft, Valentine copied his brother's keys to the arsenal, broke in, stole the plans. Oberstein had agreed to pay him £5,000 for the documents. That's half a million in today's money, by the way. And the deal was set, enabled by correspondence through the Daily Telegraph. On the night of the theft, would-be fiancé clerk Cadigan West spotted Valentine slinking through the mist with covert written all over his overcoat, so decided to do what any upstanding citizen would, abandon his poor girlfriend en route to the theatre and pursue danger at all costs. Not sure about that. Young Cadigan followed Valentine to the home of Oberstein and, like Batman, leapt from the fog, armed only with accusation and civic duty. Now, if only that were worth something. Oberstein brought the clerk's life to an unceremonious end by bludgeoning him on the doorstep. An accessory to murder, Valentine was now locked into helping Oberstein dispose of West's body through the window and onto the train, but not before stuffing the clerk's pockets with the less useful pages of the plans. See, West had suspected Sir James's brother for a while and followed him that night from Woolwich to catch him in the act. A sad end for him, and a sadder one still for his fiancée. Confession bared, Sherlock passes cold judgment on Valentine, but suggests he may yet save part of his rotten soul by writing to Oberstein in Paris from Holmes's own dictation, luring him back with the promise of more princeless, <coughs> pardon me, priceless intel. While well, the fast-forward epilogue reveals that his note was successful, Oberstein was apprehended as soon as he showed up for meeting back in London, and he was sentenced to 15 years. Valentine, however, died in prison shortly after his tenure began, which is about as nice as an ending as ACD is capable of offering a treasonous gambler whose social life and standing would all have been eradicated anyway. With plans safely back on British soil, seems there's nothing left to do but have Queen Victoria herself award Sherlock's efforts with a green emerald pin. Who knew the personal ads could carry such intrigue? Well, ACD did, because he'll use the same trope again two years later when writing The Adventure of the Red Circle. And so we end off where we began, Impressions of Rehash. I wonder, Impressions of Rehash, is that a flavor of tobacco? <laughs> well, Rehash, yeah. I, I can't imagine that's as good as the uh, red pencil crayon flakes of smoking here, which I think is making me a little woozy than I normally should be. Yeah, you should probably stop. You've been, yeah. puffing, you've been puffing for quite a while now. Probably, yeah, and uh, probably I've taken a lot of uh, like uh, gaseous lead into my body now as well. <laughs> so I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty screwed, actually. Well, speaking of gaseous lead, why don't we get into this story? Oh boy. Okay. Uh, principles. What did you give for the principles outright? Well, you know, <laughs> Jesus. This story irritates me on so many levels, but I'm really entertained by it on others. You know, I. I gave the principles overall four, believe okay. it or not. I, I gave them four overall because there's enough interplay between them to make Watson a little more energetic, a little more important than in the previous stories. But also, I think Holmes is doing more. I think he's he's more of a bloodhound in this one than we've seen before. In, he at is. least in, in, you know, most recently. And, and I like that. I like he's thinking and acting. He's not just kind of sitting and thinking. You know what I mean? Like, I like that he's he's on the move. And I feel that he's pretty good in the places, too. And he's pretty good when he's dealing with people. Like, this is a good Holmes story. Is it the best? No. Is it the 14th best? Mm, I don't mm. know. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's good. And it stands out, I think. So, yeah, I, I'm not unhappy with uh, a mark of four here. I didn't consider Mycroft a principal player. I don't consider him a principal player. I think all of these so-called canonical principles like Mycroft and Moriarty, I think they're really underdone and undercut. So I don't... mean Adler, for example, yeah, as well? Oh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I don't think much of them uh, as principles. But I think what Holmes is doing is quite clever. And, you know, we just talked about the Red Circle where the... Uh, personal ads were used and here we see it again but th this story was written before and yes for that reason i think it's quite it's quite ingenious it's, it's quite clever and i like that you know and it's not the first time he's used newspapers you know we, we could do a little uh, an audio essay on that one episode you know we, we could just talk about how he uses the media more generally to uh, to access or sorry to um, to help assist with his investigations but that's a good point yeah, I, I I liked it. I liked him. I thought he was good. I thought he was engaging. Um, you know, maybe because Doyle is interested in the story himself. Although, let's face it, submarines actually play quite, quite a small part of it all. <laughs> um, 
I think maybe he's he's given Holmes a little more interesting lines of dialogue, maybe a little bit more action. I thought he's good. I would recommend this as a good story for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I think it's a good one of those good introductory stories. Uh, I think the storyline is kind of meh as a whole, but uh, I found the principles were pretty solid here. I mean, Watson was his take along self, but he was he was a good wall to bounce off for Holmes, and we got to watch Holmes do his thing, and I, I enjoyed that. And uh, he 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 was very he was he wasn't there on an emotional or any kind of philanthropic level. He was there just to solve the case, arch for art's sake. As he said before, and uh, I, yeah, Holmes is at the top of his game. As we said many times, he's on autopilot. As we said many times, but it, it was it was good, and we could see the his you could see how the gears were turning in his head for this case, and I really appreciated that. So mm-hmm. I give as a whole the principles four based on Holmes alone. Cool. Okay, so we're we're kind of on the on the same point there. Uh, you saw Holmes certainly is more active than Watson, and so did I. Um, but doesn't everybody? <laughs> well, yes, of course. But I just mean in this case, you didn't really think that there was a step up in Watson's game. Not particularly. No, he was. This is he was just he was samey in my opinion. Okay, cool. I did sense. I, I thought there was a little more to him here. I think because he was a little more involved. You know, like he had to do the breaking and entering. He had to. And we True. Get that, we get that really interesting. We get that interesting reflection by him where Holmes writes him a note and says to meet at the restaurant and make sure you bring these things with you. Uh, I don't have, I should actually have it here. I should have it here. I want to find it because it's, it's interesting. And he reflects on it. Like, you know, God, if anybody found me with these things, I'd surely be taken in or whatever. I'm just looking for it. That doesn't matter. I think I've basically just covered it anyway, but I liked Watson a little more here. I felt like, because more was at stake, he had to step up a little bit, and I felt like he did narratively. Maybe not that much, but yeah, I went four. Anyway, we both went four. We got there in the end. Um, anything you want to say about them, or like, be before we move on to investigation? No, I think I, I think I, as I agree with you, that almost definitely a bloodhound, and uh, and he used all his resources, including Watson, to his advantage to solve the case. And mm-hmm. I can't, it was like it's just a perfect example of that dynamic. So I think four is a fair grade for the principals. I thought they had a pretty good rapport, you know, like uh, towards the end where Holmes is um, talking about the newsprint. Um, he identifies the Daily Telegraph fairly quickly, right? I don't know yeah. if you picked up on that because, yes. because of the font or the typesetting or whatever. And it kind of reminded me of when in The Hound of the Baskervilles, he tells Watson that the detection of, and this is a direct quote, the detection of types is one of the most elementary branches of knowledge to the special expert in crime. Though I confess that once, when I was very young, I confused the Leeds Mercury with the Western Morning News. So he's he's obviously got a pension for it. Yeah, it's like, oh, whenever that's whenever that line in The Hound of Baskervilles, I was just like, I felt like Watson probably in in that sequence where I'm just sort of like, Oh my God, you're 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 terrible for that one mistake, you know. Like <laughs> you're right up you're right up your own ass, you know. But 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 Holmes seems like he it seems like Holmes admonishes himself for that mistake almost. Like he's like he's like, man, what what a stupid kid I used to be, you know. Like <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it is. I think it's meant to be a chuckle, right, for the reader. Yeah. But I also think it's pretty cool. Like this is something we're learning now about our our hero, if I can use that term loosely, that we yeah. didn't we didn't know before that he has been able to identify and categorize different newspaper types by snippets which is how he knows to go to the daily express just from the font and the typesetting i think that's quite interesting so yeah anyway four good mark for us investigation what do you got to say Uh, i feel like we got a lot to talk about here the investigation i gave the investigation a whole as a three I thought it was a very put together story, uh, like we're going to the principles, but I didn't just didn't find it overly significant. Like it was a kind of a, a very neat spy game, but it was all, but it was very shallow on the surface. Um, I didn't find any particularly remarkable packages for passages. I found uh, the rapport between Watson and Holmes was good. Um, Mycroft made things a little interesting, and that created a whole international spy pot to the whole scenario. But as a whole, I just didn't get a cool... I couldn't understand Valentine's motivations beyond what we were told. Um, and Cadigan West, I think it's very clear from the beginning that he's obviously not the party. It was There was too much of a fog of intrigue over everything that I was too clear... It was too clear for me that Cadigan West was not the perpetrator and that there must be someone else involved. So I found that kind of predictable. Did you um, find so it Did you find it heavy-handed, the uh, um, that sort of shoehorned in there 
uh, gambling debts. And that's all we got of Valentine. Yeah, gambling debts seems to be, or or stock debts seems to be like the stock only... Stock debts, sorry, yeah. Yeah, seems to be like the only kind of motivating factor for a brother to betray his own brother, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. and, and his brother's way of life and his beliefs. Like, it just seemed kind of like... Wow, you know, like that's all you have to describe to describe to that. Like they could have mentioned that maybe he dislikes his older brother for another reason entirely, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that might have definitely led to him making that decision to do that. But it, it, I think to me, uh, gambling debts would weaken you as a person, and other problems that you have with someone, or they become more apparent uh, based on the the desperation that you find yourself under. Right. It's not always like one factor that's no, he did it because of gambling debts or stock debts. No, the reason why he did it, the gambling debts or the stock debts are a factor in someone, you know, turning against their brother and, and doing what Valentine did. But yeah. it's but to me, you need something else in there, some sort of like spark to set everything off. If you, okay. if, if you understand yeah. where I'm coming I from, I do. I do get you. Yeah. It's just like that really deep, deep motivation, not just like the overt uh narrative uh mcguffin motivation that drives these characters do what they do but i need to have that psychological twit i guess trigger you know what i mean okay cool yeah fair enough i i went higher than you i went for a four for the investigation okay Uh, i like this story uh for its composite parts uh i'm not saying it all works perfectly because i don't think it does but I do like no. there's a bit of world building going on here, and I really appreciated that. I, I liked how Oberstein I, I, and Larothier were also two of the spies mentioned in the second stain. I think that adds a lot to the idea of this Holmes's world being one that's surrounded by or infiltrated by perhaps uh, you know regulars in the in the criminal world. I think that's quite interesting because to me, yes. I'm more interested in their connections and oh here these guys are again. You know like that that's pretty cool. I like how. Uh, in terms of investigation, which remember is where we have to talk about the writing as well. I like how the story tries to, and okay, maybe it's a little on the top, maybe it's a little heavy handed, but this, this constant repetition of fog, you don't just get it at the beginning, you get it everywhere. I think that kind of plays in metaphorically mm. to the to the intrigue that's supposed to be around this story. You know, this is that to the environs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This isn't a clear summer day, right? And, and I think the narrative is meant to be a little bit misleading because the fog is misleading. And I think yes. he's got some interesting things going on here. Um, I, I what do you think Sorry, go ahead. about, I was going to say, what do you think about the, like, Cadogan West's fate and the whole explanation for how he ended up on the train track and, and whatnot? Do you think that was a good mislead? Do you think that was clever of Arthur Conan Doyle? Or would you think it was obvious? Or I think it's kind of like, he just happens to have the train carriage outside of his house, uh, out of the window, <laughs> yeah, okay. and throws it there. Like a moment of opportunity, like serendipity that they had that there, that they could do that and, and make profit from that situation for as long as they could. Yeah, or as fair, long as they did, I, sh- I should say. It is a little bit. It is. It is a little bit convenient, but at the same time, like you can double guess yourself, right? It's it's like a bluff or a double bluff. Like, would a criminal not love to have access to something like that if he was a mercenary, if he was a killer? You know, like that would be yeah. something quite convenient. But at the same time, that would also draw attention to his location because it did for Holmes, and you know he was thinking about that. But. At the same time, why would a criminal get a place like that if they wanted to draw attention to themselves? And so you can go back and forth. I actually think it was quite clever. I liked it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't think it was it was too you know just convenient. Like it kind of made some sense to me that this would be a place where Oberstein would would stay while he was in London because if he ever needed it, yeah, it was convenient for him. And if we're to see these criminals, these spies, if he is indeed linked to Moriarty's network, yes, then we've got to think of them as intelligent too. And and yes. I, I'm happy to play that game if Doyle's wanting me to. But I do have this question, and it's kind of irritating me. I don't know if it irritated you or not. Maybe I'm, you know looking too far into it but like how did holmes know where to meet oberstein when he when he planted that fake dictation? yes like, I, I, there's no I evidence there's no evidence how, how he got that point exactly i found that really inconsistent yeah like is it a legitimate doyle blunder or is that just something that watson as a narrator has just kind of blah went past you know well, Watson and Doyle are the same. They're the same, so, yeah. yeah uh, but I, it, I, 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 okay, would, I would say yes. I'm, yes, yeah, but you know what I'm doing here. I'm playing devil's advocate to the Sherlockians yes. who would who would try yeah. to say that, oh, this was this was Watson you know, who overlooked something. Right? <laughs> of course, of course. It's, it's just, I don't know. Like, there was no evidence in the Oberstein flat that they'd actually met there. So, hey, whatever. I guess it doesn't matter. But um, 
I think I think it does. I think you, I think your emphasis on the spy story and the world building made me definitely think about that a bit more than I usually do. And again, I'm showing my jadedness. I think on just in terms of how I can feel about these stories lately, and I'm not and I'm missing some really good good points uh, in some of them. So I'm going to give an extra 0. 0.5 to my investigation and make it 3.5. Okay, that's fine. I'll record that for you. Uh, 3.5 then on your investigation, Mark. Yeah. I'll, also wanted to say something about, uh, and I found this interesting. I, I looked it up following a note on the Klinger edition here on suspicious characters in general, because it's reported, and I'll just read the bit here for you from the story. Only take me a minute. This is when they decided to do the uh, the break in. Okay. I knew you would okay. not. I knew you would not shrink at the last," said he. And for a moment, I saw something in his eye that was nearer to tenderness than I'd ever seen. The next instant, he was his masterful, practical self once more. It is nearly half a mile, but there's no hurry. Let us walk," said he. "Don't drop the instruments, I beg. Your arrest as a suspicious character it would be most unfortunate complication." Anyway, so I followed that note on. The definition, Josh, of a suspicious character may be found in the Police Code of 1904, which states, "Quote." Everyone is liable to penal servitude who was found by night having in his possession without lawful excuse, proof of which excuse lies upon him, any picklocks or false keys, jemmy, center bit, chisel, bradawl, grimlet, or any other instrument adapted for housebreaking and forcing windows, doors, or locks. It's little wonder, then, why Holmes was concerned about Watson's culpability, because he's got like three or four of those things, plus a gun. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that there's actually a definition that justifies the possibility of being picked up just because you have like a jimmy on you or because you have some tool you could actually be picked up as a suspicious character and put in jail for just having these things on you at night because you would be taken legally as a housebreaker or a burglar well that makes sense uh, even in the modern day right uh, by having these kind of burgling tools i know having burglar it's illegal to have those tools even in the modern day is it? If, if that's if that's any help, yeah. I recall watching. Now I'm referring, of course, to like modern day police procedurals. But I it does occur to me uh, that I did I did see like one instance where someone had those tools on them, and it was considered illegal to have those types of tools. Hmm. I guess unless I, I think be, unless you're like a locksmith or something like that. Okay. But uh, why are you a locksmith at like in the middle of the night? You know, trying to break into a house. <laughs> I get, well, I mean, people forget their keys all the time, right? Uh, it's true. It's true. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. Let's move on to perpetrators. This uh, Valentine guy. Yeah, our perpetrators. So I get the perpetrators a whole like two. Yeah, I just found I meant as I mentioned in the investigation, I found Valentine's motivations really weak. Um, Overseem seemed kind of like an interesting character, but he wasn't fleshed out enough for me. I wanted to see more of him. Uh, he just seems like he, he was a really cool spy type villain. Um, that's basically how I felt about the villains of the story. Um, I think they could have been fleshed out a lot more. For particular, it's a very kind of uh, multi-layered investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I went 2.5 because I, I did think it was neat, the, um, the, the Oberstein connection. And like I said, the way that there was a bit of world building there, I felt like, okay, at least he's going back to that and he's trying to build something. You know, like I thought that was cool. But yes, I agree 100% with you. Valentine was a real letdown, particularly we know that there's a corrupt figure in there if, as you said a few moments ago, he's going to sell out his brother that way and he's going to betray, you know, the family, the honor and all of that. Like, it's terrible that he would do that. It's it's a really despicable thing to do uh, for, yeah. the, for the sake of, of stock debt. And I, I guess I can see it, but, you know, he would get his brother into an awful lot of shit and that just goes to show what moral compass we're dealing with. Yeah, I don't think any attention to kill uh, you oh, know, no, cutting no, the West and no. take the plans, but so everything goes kind of like pear shaped when uh, Oberstein kills uh, West, and then he has he's stuck in that situation. And I would have liked to see the moral complexity of Valentine. I think it would have been much stronger, and he would be a much better sympathetic villain if that was the case. But he's just kind of like, oh, you caught me. I'm a terrible person. My brother died of dishonor. Like, it's, you know, like it was just very, very rushed upon. And I think it's something that could have been fleshed out. I think of many, many stories. And I say this, I say this before, but I, in particular, this story, this could have benefited from like a, a novella, in my opinion. Yeah, it could have been. It is that complex. Um, you would yeah, have got yeah. more Oberstein. You would have got a lot more like Oberstein seems like he's kind of like a resourceful and uh, quick footed 
you know, uh, Milvington in in many ways. Like that's kind of how I visualize the yes. character. Yeah, and I yeah he is. But again, I think we have to recognize that Holmes isn't always going to catch these big fish, and th- this, no. there's there's a difference right between the Obersteins, the Larothiers, the uh, the Milvertons, and these guys. These are the guys who are secondary criminals that rely on or catch the food from the the bigger guys that always stay out of trouble, right? And Oberstein didn't stay out of trouble. He did get caught. And so I think his arc is kind of in here as well, which is why I'm going up. I'm actually leaning towards three. I'm going to stay at 2.5, but I would lean a little bit towards three here. Um, hmm. uh, anyway, I, I just think that, you know, it's okay that Valentine's a bit of a buffoon, uh, I don't think it's okay. Like criminally, it's okay. He's a buffoon, but in terms of his character, I'm with you. He's very underdeveloped, and it's hinted at that he has these these depths of um, you know moral rot. But we don't we don't get it because we, we don't get very much with him. He's just kind of like the guy who was trying to find an easy fix, got in too deep, and then ended up having to be an accessory to murder. Yes. So anyway. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. So let's look at the, um, you know, you're going for, you went for 2.5 on the, on the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. What, what was your score for the uh, environs? I gave the environs a four because I thought that the, uh, the use of the train line was interesting. It's something we hadn't really seen before in quite this way. We've been on many trains, but we've never been picking bodies off the lines. Mm. I liked the apartment, even if it did feel a little too overconvenient, you know, with the window in the hall that was hanging over. I thought that was cool. I liked um, some of the, again, you got to be careful with some of these because if you read into it, you get really cool locations, but the locations don't jump off the page necessarily. Like the Royal Arsenal of Military Institution uh, in Woolwich, where you get these war weapons manufactured and stored, like, and where the Bruce Partington plans were kept. Uh, I went on and did a bit of research into that, and so I really find that a cool place, but it's not a cool place on the page. You know what I mean? And so we're rating, we're rating the locations or the environments on the page and how they're used in the story. I can't give this 598-acre space with 14,000 employees, as described in Baedeker's Guide of the Time, I can't give that high marks for the story because we don't get any of it. It's only from my own research. But I do do like the rail lines. I do like the different apartments. I like Holmes in the hotel. I think it's a funny scene to show him, uh, you know, to imagine the two characters dining while Watson has, you know, beneath his waistcoat all of these burglary tools and guns. Like, I think it's kind of (laughs) cool. I kind of think it's cool the way that we've got that contrast of kind of low brow and high brow. They're about to go do a burglary, but they're sitting down. And I I don't know what the cocktail is that that, uh, Holmes asks Watson to try, but he tells him to try something, and it's quite funny. (laughs) <laughs> do you recall yeah i recall that scene it was pretty funny um also i'll say another thing too is that uh my final score for the environment was three by the way but i agree with you that that juxtaposition between as you said low brow and high brow like the 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 the, the fact they're in a, in a fancy restaurant and dining and then have all these burglary tools just kind of shows the sort of like how they navigate on a kind of this thin line between um, criminality and lawful order, I suppose, in their investigations. It's cool, yeah. He sa- he says to Watson, um, have you had something to eat? Join me in a coffee in Curacao. Try one of the proprietor's cigars. They're less poisonous than one would expect. Have you the tools? Like, it's just kind of... Yeah. He-, he can do these things. He can juggle the serious because his-, his-, his concept of consequence just isn't what a regular human's is, which brings me back to this whole idea of him as a high-functioning autistic. I think, yeah. re- I think this is a great example of that, right? Like, yeah, I know what we're about to do, but sit down and let's have a real you know, a, a real weighty thing because it's it's not bothering me. I'm not really thinking about it. It's not a big deal. I'm just breaking into someone's house to find some government secrets. Like it's it's all very kind of just another day, you know? Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, it is kind of another day in that way. Uh, it's like, a, it's like oh, it, doing these things, it's like a day that ends in Y, right? It's that's just that, uh, that, that consistency that they always have to deal with those situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I do agree with you that like, um, well, I only gave three for the environs. Uh, I think you, I think you're fair to give a bit of higher remark if you feel about that. And I, I think that goes into the world building, as you said, that, that's in this story. You get to see London on the trains, like in the restaurants. Uh, it's, it's like, it's like a cross London adventure. I think it's a very cosmopolitan London adventure. You go to the, you go down to the train yards, like underground. You're like, you know, it's like the first kind of metropolitan railway sort of in that respect. 
So I, I don't think there was some like descriptions that evoked an atmosphere, except for you mentioning the fog. Uh, that's also a, a good point. Uh, this whole fog that falls over everything uh, that that makes things blurry for the reader and for motivation and and all that. And maybe that's kind of the story that Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to portray here: is that it's the fog of intrigue, it's the uh, ambiguity, you know, of 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 these situations that create the ambiguity of morality and people like Valentine and, and people like Cadigan West, do we know he's good or is he bad? You know what I mean? Like what is Oberstein's motivations? Everything is always in a fog. And I think that fits for the environs uh, to a T. Uh, so I, I chose three. I think, as I said, it's fair that you would go higher if you wanted to, depending upon how much it affected you. No problem. Uh, secondary characters, I went 3.5 here. Uh, As did I. I. I like Mycroft, you know, he's cool, but uh, whatever. Like, I'm not really, I don't think he's important. I don't read the stories and get really excited when he shows up. It's kind of cool when he does because I know that Sherlock is going to have a bit more of a deeper connection, a more, yes. more of a deeper involvement. But Mycroft himself, I, I kind of figure like, I know more about his job now than I knew before, but He's just still the same wussy guy he was in The Greek Interpreter. He didn't really impress me all that much there either. He was nice and fun and whatever, but now he's not beyond a three. Uh, I did like uh, Cadigan West. I, I felt, however, that it was a little unbelievable that this guy would just drop his, his uh, girlfriend or his fiance and leave her. Like, where's the chivalry? Like, is civic duty more important to chivalry? You know, <laughs> like, or I didn't really get that, but... Yeah, it wasn't very Victorian of him, that's for sure. Well, yeah, exactly. Um... This is the third canonical Violet, though. We have uh, Violet Hunter in the Copper Beaches, Violet Smith in the Solitary Cyclist, and here we have Violet West in this story. We have one more coming. Um, sorry, Violet Westbury, but there's one more on the way. Uh, uh, so we'll have to wait and see. It's a name that Doyle certainly liked. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think he has some nostalgia happening there. It's funny, though, this is the first of the Violets that we've met that didn't have really much of an active role. Violet Smith was pretty switched on in The Solitary Cyclist. Violet Hunter was one, Hunter. Of, his, one of his best female characters. Yeah. Uh, and this Violet Westbury doesn't really have much to do at all. She's just kind of abandoned on a platform. But, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. She's she's out in the narrative. She gives humanity to, and, and definition to Cadogan West, right? Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. how we kind of know from her testimony that he may not be the man that everyone thinks that he is. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so she's useful in that respect. But yeah, yeah it's, how, it's how people like Mycroft or Lestrade throw people under the bus based on uh, just what they seem to, to do, you know, like based on the evidence. And yeah, they're totally. very, and then, you know, the, it's all about how that person is. It's all about context, you know. So 3.5 for me, uh, I think that is about it. What about you? Yeah, 3.5, I think. Oh, is sorry, you did say fair. that. I did, yes. Right, so well, looking, okay, up, looking up the totals of the Bruce Parton and Plan, you, my good man, are at a 16, and I am at that's 6, and that's 10. Yeah, I'm at 18 for this one, buddy. Oh, good for you. Good, I'm at good. 18. So this, what, is, a, this what, is a really strange week, because with the exception of Wisteria Lodge, I'm not just a half point, but I'm two points ahead in both of these stories. I'm liking both of these stories more, which is really saying something, because... I'm not really liking all of these stories. So that's pretty cool the way this is starting to flip a little. I think what's happening is I think you're digging more into, you're not literally liking these stories, but you're digging deeper into them. You dig deeper than you normally do, maybe perhaps, because you want to find out why you're not enjoying these stories. And by digging deeper into it, you find out, in fact, that you might have enjoyed them more than you actually did. And that in other cases, it's more of a surface level enjoyment. We're here now, you're kind of going, you're going deeper into the work. If well, that makes any sense yeah, to you. It, it, it does. No, it totally does make sense. Uh, something else, though, that before we leave this story, uh, and it's kind of connected to our musical selection, something I got to tell you. You know how there were three pages, right? Three pages of the Bruce Partington plans that were kind of unaccounted for? Yes. In the narrative. It turns out that this wasn't just any submarine. The Bruce Partington submarine was actually, wait for it. A yellow submarine. <laughs> I thought it might be useful, fitting, fun, all of the above, to let uh, that fine Beatles song play in the background while I read a little bit of my research on the history of submarines, which would have been so exciting to Doyle playing Sub in the Tub. Uh, I'm sure it would have been. 
The first underwater vehicle, BFG, was built in 1620, tested 15 feet below the surface of the Thames. Inventors played around with the idea, but it wasn't until the 19th century that efforts intensified. During the Civil War in America, Confederacy mm. developed several vessels designed to affix payload explosives to hulls of enemy ships. Each was powered by hand-cranked propellers, and only one, the H.L. Hunley, had any success Hunley. had any success in attacking a Union warship. In 1880, George W. Garrett built an underwater vehicle powered by coal-fire boilers. In 1886 was the year we saw electric motors included. The Holland 6 from 1897 carried a crew of nine and could fire torpedoes and guns. Germany, comparatively, was late getting into design, 1905, but it was actually quicker to recognize the Folsom War potential, as we said earlier. Following World War I, most major players saw the importance of submarine warfare and invested more time and resources into sharing and, I guess you could say, storing away their developments. So I got more, but in the spirit of brevity... I was still underwater in the, in the Hunley attaching bombs to Union ships. Uh, it's pretty dying. cool, though. Like, there's a lot more that I un- that I uncovered about that, but that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, read about the Hunley. It's really interesting, actually. The actual choices, the musical choices for the Bruce Partington plan. Because Holmes was irritated at the beginning, bored, and he was studying the polyphonic motets of the Middle Ages, of the medieval period, I got a couple of those, and I thought it might be fun to play one. Oh, okay. You interested to hear any of them? Yeah. Specifically, this composer, Orlando de la Suth, this is the guy that Holmes is working on. Uh, he wrote a folio on it, didn't he? The polyphonic motets. This is a polyphonic motet written by that, that man. Oh, interesting. So a polyphonic motet, Josh, uh, for your own musical interest and that of our listeners. Hopefully none of them have more musical knowledge than me because I'm going to be shown and seen pretty quickly as a fraud. It's just uh, a piece of music written for different lines of voice. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Don't feel we gave uh, that maybe the, you know, the credit it deserved or the time it deserved on stage, but there it is. Bola Cristal from Orlando de la Sousse. 